what a joy singing with you, praying with you, and now sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to His voice. We had a, a wonderful Lord's Day last Sunday. Thank you all. Uh, the meal was wonderful, spending time with each other. Would you please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6? Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to invite you to stand if you can. Here's the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Verse 17 now. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You may be seated. And Lord, we ask you, we ask you the the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in us and through us. Your word says that we who are evil give good gifts to our children. How much more you who is perfectly good and loving would not give us the Holy Spirit if we ask you. So we ask you to give us your spirit to open our eyes, our hearts. Give us bread so that we may live the bread of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The sword of the spirit. Swords are an emblem. You think about swords. Swords are an emblem of war. Even today where so much of our war is fought with machine guns, even today still the sword is, a, is an emblem, a picture of warfare. And I think about the famous warriors throughout history, and they all had their famous swords with them. So you think about William Wallace, the guardian of Scotland, and he was famous for his sword. The sword became known as the Wallace Sword. Or you think about Napoleon Bonaparte, and he's always pictured as one with a sword on his side. Uh, probably one of the most famous swords is Excalibur, right? King Arthur's famous sword. Charlemagne, or Charlet le Grande, was also famous for the sword who, that conquered Europe. Joy Sue, his famous sword. That conquered Europe. I think about mythological or historical books, narratives. You have Conan and his sword. You have in the Lord of the Rings, you have Narsil, yielded by Elendil, and Enderil, yielded by Aragorn. Famous swords. Well, for Christians, we are well familiarize with the Pilgrim's Progress. And in the Pilgrim's Progress, you have Christian. And Christian receives his armor and he receives a sword. And it's beautiful as you're reading that narrative says, as Christian is facing Apollyon, the destroyer, says, then Apollyon, they spy, spying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian, and wrestling with him, gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I'm sure of thee now, 
And with that, he had almost pressed him to death. So that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. Micah 7, 8. And with that gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his, he received his mortal wound. And then it says, Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Hey, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon wings and sped him away. The Christian saw him no more. James 4, 7. As we move to the greatest story of all, the greatest drama of all, the drama of redemption, the Bible, we also see the importance of swords throughout the scriptures. And you think about the first reference to sword in the Bible is where? In the Garden of Eden, remember? Right in the beginning, when God places guardians to protect the sacred place with what? Yes, fiery swords to protect. Those swords play a vital role throughout the scriptures. You think about David. David. And as he's fighting with Goliath, after he knocks the giant snake down, do you remember what he does? He grabs the dragon's sword and he used that same sword to do what? Behead him, the enemy. Or think about Solomon. And as he's wrestling and dealing with two ladies arguing about a baby, do you remember what he says? Bring me the sword. So sword plays a vital role throughout the scriptures. Swords become a picture of war and judgment. That's why we have the Lord Jesus saying, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring what? A sword to the land. The Lord himself is pictured as one yielding his sword. So for example, in Isaiah 34, verses 5 through 6, we read, For my sword, says the Lord, has drunken its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Yahweh, the Lord, has a sword, and it's sated with blood. The Lord has a sword. The psalmist says in Psalm 7:12, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. And Moses Beautifully, he does not only say that God has a sword, but that God is our sword. And you have this beautiful image where Moses pictures, as he's speaking his last words to Israel, now he pictures Yahweh as their sword. So he says in Deuteronomy 33, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, then you see that the Lord is a shield and a sword, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. So it's considering the role of swords, and especially the Lord as a sword that Paul addresses now, the church to take up the sword of the Spirit, God himself. So as a word of context, as we come into Ephesians 2, uh, it's just... It's important to keep in mind the call for unity. Paul is calling the church for unity. He's calling the people of God to remember that they are one. God, Jesus has made them one. So, throughout this whole letter, Paul keeps just calling the church to be one, unified. The metaphors that Paul uses is for the church to be one body, one family. It is in this context that Paul calls the church to take up the armor of God. That's very important. It's in the context of the church that the Lord calls us to take up the armor of God. And you can see that there are not shields and swords and helmets. It's just one. It's just one helmet. It's one sword. It's one belt. To the whole church. 
We are prone to think that's all about me. And especially when it comes to the sword, we always think about just me personally, me yielding the sword. And you've got to remember, that's for the whole church. Revelation 12 says that Satan, the dragon, is furious and he's attacking God's people, the community of God's people. And you've got to be mindful. The call to take up the sword of the Spirit is not a call for lonely and individual Christians to read their Bible, study, and memorize the Scriptures outside the life in the church. By no means. And that's what we often see. As if the sword of the Spirit is these people who have no life in the church, just studying, filling their minds, and yet no life in the local church. No, that the sword is given to the whole body. Amen? So, let's move to... The sixth part, that's part number six of the armor. And you can see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. And these lights are wonderfully hot. <laughs> so look at, in your Bibles, verse 17. And remember how Paul says, he, he talked about receiving or taking, welcoming the helmet of salvation. And that's the same verse, take, welcome receive that he's going to now say for the sword of the spirit it's a gift of god god has given us the father has given the son and we embrace we receive gladly and with joy this gift that he has given to us and then he says receive or take to arms embrace the sword of the spirit and the word that paul uses here for sword Mahaira, that's the regular word for sword. That's the normal word for sword. Because Paul is not trying to create a theology of different types of swords. So sometimes I have heard other preachers saying, oh, so there was the Mahaira, there was the smaller sword, and then you have the, the Ronfaya, that was the broad sword. And then they try to come up with all sorts of ideas. Or Paul is just using a word for sword because he's using a metaphor. So he's just saying, here. That's the sword. The sword of the Spirit. And that's very important. Because in verse 12, Paul told us that we are in a what? spiritual warfare. We have a spiritual battle. Therefore, we need what? A sword of the Spirit. A spiritual sword. A sword that is made, created, empowered by the Holy Spirit, yielded by the Spirit, if you're in a spiritual warfare. I just want to remind you that nowhere under the New Covenant, nowhere in the New Testament, the church is called to take up earthly or natural swords. The church is never called to bear arms to defend it herself or to advance the kingdom of God. Nowhere. Nowhere in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the church is encouraged, exhorted, and commanded to take up earthly weapons. It's always spiritual weapons. Our constitutional right for individual citizens here in America to bear arms has nothing to do with the, what the Bible teaches about the church's jurisdiction and mission. You as an individual Christian living in this country has nothing to do with the call of the Lord and the jurisdiction of the church. The church has never been commanded to take arms. Amen? And we live in a culture where machine gun preachers become really exciting. People defending the church with guns and promoting the kingdom of God. By that has nothing to do with the Bible. You remember Peter... He pulls a sword, he draws a sword to defend the king of the kingdom. And what does the king say? Put his thing back. Those who live by this will die by the sword. He's rebuked by the Lord. You read the book of Acts and you never see under persecution, under suffering, the church being called to bear arms to advance the kingdom of God. Paul says... For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we need spiritual weapons for this spiritual warfare. No man is brought to the kingdom of God through natural earthly weapons. Okay? Nobody here was saved and nobody will ever be saved through natural earthly weapons. So Paul says, he calls us to take up the sword of the Spirit. And you see, I said the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the sword is a synonym, is parallel to the Word of God. And the word that Paul uses here, you can see, for the word of God is the Greek word rema, or rema. And I have heard people creating a whole theology of rema, as if rema is different from logos. So they say that rema is the spoken word and the logos is the written word. So there is a whole theology of that. Rema is the spoken word. Logos is the written word. Uh, or Logos refers to the substance. Rema to the utterance. The problem is the substance is uttered and the utterance has a substance. So, so I'll, I'll talk more about, about this, but that's important for us to keep in mind. I, I think when Paul used the word rema here, rema for word of God, he's, he's the same thing as logos. He's just referring to the word itself. Uh, so, for example, in Acts, and we see how the, the biblical authors use rema and logos as synonyms. I'm not saying they're ident identical words, but they are used as synonyms when you're dealing with the word of God. So, for example, in Acts 10.44, says, while Peter was still saying these words, and that's Rema, the Holy Spirit fell on all who, heard, all who heard the Logos. The words that Peter was speaking was what? The Logos. So the Rema is the same as Logos. Or for example, another example, you can see how they are synonyms. So... In Hebrews 11.3, we see creation by Rema. And then in 2 Peter 3.5, we see creation by Logos. So the author, the preacher of Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Rema of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then you see Peter, now he's going to talk about creation with the Logos. So Peter says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the what? Logos, the word of God. So you start seeing how the biblical authors, they use Logos and Rema as synonyms for the word of God. Or John, have another one. John chapter 12, 48. Jesus says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my rema, my words, has a judge, the logos that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So the words, the same thing, rema, logos, it's synonym. And that's important because some preachers say that the word of God is only the sword of the spirit when it's rema. So they say, right here in the Bible, it's logos. And it's not a sword. It's only a sword when it becomes a rema, when you are speaking that word into a situation. That's when it becomes the sword of the Spirit. And there is a, a whole theology of speaking and bringing the rema into life, and that's how it becomes a sword. I disagree, and if you agree with that, that's okay. I just hope you study the scriptures. So, for example, especially going to the Old Testament, looking at the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and how often they use Logos and Rema synonymously, referring to the same thing, the Word of God, and the same in the New Testament. I'm not saying it's, it's always. Of course, there are contexts, but when it's referring to the Word of God, it's the same thing, it's synonym. So, for example, in Matthew 4, 4, 
when Jesus is being attacked by Satan. Remember, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. It says, it's written, men shall not live by bread alone, but by, but by every rema that comes from the mouth of God. What, what is that rema? But the logos, the word of God. So, the rema of God and the logos of God, I believe, are the same thing. Okay? Uh, just, I, I, I just have a hard time believing the. This is the Logos, and when I'm speaking, that becomes the Rema of God. So when I speak, that becomes the sword. Right here, it's not the sword. Uh, okay, the, the key thing here is that we are not looking at, as I have been trying to say, we are not looking at the Roman soldier. We need to look at the Old Testament. What is Paul bringing to us from the Old Testament? Because that was his background, and we saw how the whole armor is actually grounded and founded in the Old Testament. And it's not different. It's the sword of the Spirit. So we saw in Isaiah 11, in Isaiah 11:5, we saw that the Messiah, the son of David, he would come with the belt of truth. Remember that? So we see that this whole armory is coming from, especially from Isaiah. And in Isaiah 11, the Messiah would come with the belt of truth. But in Isaiah 11, still in Isaiah 11, it says that the, the Messiah, the, the son of David, he would come empowered by the Spirit. Remember, and the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of discernment, all those attributes of the Spirit in the Messiah. And it says in verses 4 through 5, and you can see how Paul is borrowing from there, he says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And says, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So the picture is of the Messiah striking the, striking the earth with the rod of his mouth. Just like a, a sword. And he co compares that in the Hebrew with the Ruach, the spirit, the breath that's coming out of his mouth. So you see the Messiah, the rod here striking, and the spirit. The, the Greek version of the same passage says, He will strike the land with the words, here have logos of his mouth, and with the spirit, the breath, through his lips he will destroy ungodly things. I strongly believe that Paul is also boring coming to this passage in order to bring the, to the New Testament. Uh, one scholar says, just to show how I'm not crazy, and you have other people also who agree and study and, and, and support this view. So Clinton Arnold, he says, here referring to this passage in, in Isaiah 11, he says, here we have the conjunction of the two key ideas from Ephesians 6.17. You have word and spirit. Although a different term for word, logos, not rema, is used here, the interchangeability of the words renders that insignificant. More important, the concept of Messiah as divine warrior supplying his power and weapons to his people for warfare is clearly present. Messiah's end-time warfare against his enemies has already begun in the present through the church, but will culminate in a decisive defeat at the end. So not only Isaiah 11, but Isaiah 49 too. And Isaiah 49 is a beautiful chapter about the servant of the Lord coming to fight for his people and bring deliverance. And look at Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 3. says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my, my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. So you see the sword, a sharp sword, and the Messiah once again being put in together in Isaiah. And... Uh, Lastly, Isaiah 59, we have been seeing Isaiah 59, especially verse 17, how the breastplate of righteousness is coming from there, the, the helmet of salvation is coming from Isaiah 59. 
And it's interesting if you keep reading the whole chapter of Isaiah 59, and you come after verses 17, it says the following, and I think that's important because I believe Paul is heavily being influenced by Isaiah 59. It says, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my and my words, Rema. So you see the connection between spirit and word that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring. I don't have time to develop this, but you start seeing that the Messiah in the Old Testament, he's portrayed as this warrior coming with a sword or a rod to strike the enemies, and this sword is what? His word is coming out of his mouth, and the spirit is guiding this word. So you have this connection between the Messiah the breath, the word, and a sword in order to deliver his people. So, we just don't have time to develop, but it's, it's a beautiful study. As, as you go through the Old Testament, see how the Messiah is pictured as this one who has a sword coming out of his mouth to strike the nations and bring judgment and salvation to his people. So, moving back to, going back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, and we, I have been arguing that this whole armor is Christ himself. And I would argue also that the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God, is also Christ Jesus. And we know that Jesus is the Word because the Word tells us. In John chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus is the Word. So you read in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and tabernacle among us. It's fascinating that Jesus is called the Word. Why? Why is Jesus called the Word? Oh, He's the Word of God. Think about the words. Words. Jesus is the Word because He's the speech of God. And why do you speak? Because you're revealing something. So, He reveals God to us. He informs us about who God is. That's why He's the speech. He's the Word of God. He's, he's coming out of an extension of God Himself, the Father. And He's revealing the Father to us. That's why He's the Word. In John 1.18, He says that, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He has made him known. That's the ESV. If you have the NASB, we'll say he has explained. The Greek verb here is from where we get exegesis, the exegetical work. You know, when you go through the Greek, you try to interpret, that's the exegetical work. You're going through the scripture, studying, and that's what John is telling us, that Jesus is the word. He, he has exegeted the Father for us. He has explained who the Father is for us. I like what Richard Phillips writes. He says, We exegete scriptures to give a full account of its meaning. This is what Jesus does. He interprets and explains and exposits God to us. Jesus gives a full revelation of God in what He taught and what He did. To know what God is like and what God intends for the world, we need... We need only study Jesus Christ. This is why John called him the Word. God speaks most plainly and eloquently in Jesus. This is what we most greatly need and what we should all most fervently seek to know God through Jesus Christ. That's why he's the Word. Jesus is the Word because he's the revelation of God. The mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. John tells us that the Logos, the, the Word was where? At the Father's bosom. The Father's side, really close to His heart. So He's a revelation of the Father's heart to us. Jesus and the Scriptures, as you think about Jesus and the Word of God, Jesus and the Scriptures, both are theanthropic. What is that? Theos, anthropos. Both are fully divine and fully human. Right? We have fully human authorship and fully divine authorship. The same with Jesus. Let's think about the Word of God. Both, both words, the, the incarnate Word and the scripturated or written Word, 
Both are the revelation of God's covenant to man. So both are covenantal revelations. You see why Jesus and the Word are inseparable. And you think about Jesus, the sword of the Spirit. And you see Jesus connected to the Spirit. So Jesus, as the sword of the Spirit, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and was raised by the power of the Spirit. So you see how the sword, Jesus, was controlled, yielded, conceived, and raised by the Spirit of God. The presence of God is found in both the incarnate word and the written word. So John Frame says, God's word is his self-expression. In the term self-expression, I put the emphasis on self. What I mean to say is that whenever God speaks, he not only reveals his power, not only reveals verbal content, but also reveals himself. That is to say, the word is the very presence of God among us. The place where God dwells. So you cannot separate the word of God from whom? From God himself. So frames, frame goes on. And he says. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. We usually use this passage to show the deity of Christ. And it's an ex- it's, it is an excellent passage for this purpose. But I want you to see that this passage does not only identify Jesus with God, it also identifies God's speech with God. The phrase in the beginning takes us back to Genesis 1. In that passage, the Word was the creative Word of God, the Word that made the world. John 1.3 emphasized the creative work of the Word. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then he goes on, frame says, and here's important. He says, so the word that was God in verse 1 was not only Jesus, as verse 14 clearly indicates, but also the speech of God commanding the light to come out of darkness in Genesis 1-3. So the word of God and God is the word. Where God is, the word is, and vice versa. God's word is not only powerful and authoritative, it's the very presence of God in our midst. Huh. That's why Jesus is the word. He's the presence of God within us. I'll just add, by the power and work of the Holy Spirit, the word manifests Jesus himself among us. It's only when the Spirit is working through the word that God, Jesus, is present through his word. But that's why we pay so much honor and reverence to the Word of God. Why do we stand up when you're reading God's Word? Because God is present in His Word. God is present in His Word. Through the operation of the Spirit. So Paul says in Ephesians 2.17, look at that. He says, And Jesus came and preached peace to you, talking to the Ephesians. Who are far off and peace to those who are near. Let me ask you. How did Jesus come to the Ephesians? How did Jesus come and preach to the Ephesians? Because Jesus was just in Palestine. Jesus never went to Ephesus. Amen? Do you have any account of Jesus traveling all the way to Ephesus and preaching to the Ephesians? No. So how did Jesus preach the Ephesians? How did Jesus come? He says, and He came and preached to you. How? Through the preaching. The Spirit-filled apostles preaching the Word of God. Christ was present there in Ephesus. As if He was Himself right there inviting them to come into His presence. In Revelation 1.16, we see that the Lord Jesus... Is the one from whose mouth come a sh- came a sharp two-edged sword. In 1915, says from Revelation 19.15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Where, where is John borrowing this imagery from? Isaiah 11. You see, now he's applying, he's changing just the rod to the sword that's coming out of the mouth of the Messiah. So when Jesus came to earth, think about the incarnation, the incarnate word dwelling with us. 
When Jesus came to earth to save us, he came preaching the word. He came yielding the sword under the power of the Spirit. Since he was a little kid, he was already yielding the sword. Do you remember? His parents could not find him. Where was he at? What was he doing in the temple? Preaching, teaching, yielding the sword of the Spirit. So Jesus came preaching, teaching the word. He used the word of God as a weapon to defend himself in the wilderness. He used the word as a weapon of defense and offense. So you remember when he's being attacked by the religious leaders in his last week. He's always confronting them with what? The sword, the word of God. Have you not read? Have you not read? Always yielding the sword. Paul calls the church to take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And the Word is inseparable from Jesus because it's an extension of Jesus Himself. The Word is an extension of God Himself. We saw earlier, as in the call to worship, Colossians chapter 3, it's a military context. Paul is calling the church to put to death, execute what is earthly. And then he goes on to talk about how, how, how are we going to win this war? How are we going to put you to death? And then he tells us, by having the word of Christ dwelling richly in you. And the word of Christ is whom? Christ himself dwelling with us. And empowering us and then singing and preaching the word. That's part of the warfare. So as the word of Christ richly abounds in our church through the singing of the word, through the praying of the word, through the preaching of the word, Jesus protects us and advances our conquests. Amen? The sword of the Spirit is powerful. The author of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's beautiful how the author of Hebrews gives the attributes of God himself to the word of God. Look at that. First of all, he says that the word of God is living. Living. In chapter 3, verse 12, he just talked about the living God. And now he's talking about the Word of God as living. The vitality of the Word is the vitality of God Himself. The Bible is an extension of the living Christ. And no other book has this vitality. That's why I stand here and I read this book. I preach this book. Because no other book has the vitality, the life that this book has. Because this book is an extension of the living God and the living Christ. Christ is alive, and He's using His Word to change us and save us. Amen? Not only alive, living, He says that it's active. Active. Energous. Effective. Powerful to transform, just like God Himself. The Word is effectual, just like God. Christ Jesus is actively saving and sanctifying His church through the power of the Spirit in His Word. So the Word is active. Why? Because it's an extension of the active Jesus. Jesus is actively working through His church by the means of His Spirit and His Word. And the description of the Word as sharper than any two-edged sword takes us to Revelation. Remi reminding us that this Word is actually an extension. It's coming out of the mouth of the Messiah, Christ Himself. It says that the word is so sharp that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. And you've got to be careful here because the preacher, he does not want to teach us about human physiology, joints and marrow. That's not his purpose. He's not trying to teach about human physiology or human psychology, trying to discern between the different spirit and soul. That's not what he's doing. He's stressing the utter effectiveness of God's word, of God's sword. It pierces the impossible, our feelings, our affections, our emotions, thoughts, and desires. The most inaccessible places, they are indeed pierced by the Word of God. Because there is no place where God cannot be present and seen 
and beholding. And that's what he says following. He says that the word discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Who can do that? Who can discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart? God himself. Only God. So Psalm 94, 11, Psalm 94, 11, Psalm 139, 23, Jeremiah 20, 12, 1 Chronicles 28, 9, 1 Samuel 16, 7. All this passage says that only God can discern the thoughts of the heart. Interesting, in Revelation 2, 23, Revelation 2, 23, the Lord Jesus is described as one who searches the minds and the hearts. The prophet Simeon, as he's holding Jesus, he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of men in, in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, so that thoughts, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And now he applies this attribute that belongs to God Himself, and He gives you whom? The Word. The Word. The author of Hebrews gives this attribute of God Himself to the Word of God. The speech of God knifes through the curtain between heaven and earth, piercing to the depths of humanity, exposing to view the secret intentions of the heart. And look at verse 13. He says, And no creature is hidden from... 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 His side... Oh, some a personal pronoun. Suddenly, the word carries the personhood of God Himself. You see what the author is doing? There is no separation. The word is Christ. I like what Joe Owen writes. Joe Owen, he writes, But it's Christ Himself who makes the word active and sharp. The main efficiency is in himself, acting in and with it. So what is meant in this verse is the spiritual, almighty, penetrating efficacy of the Lord Christ as he deals with people's souls and conscience by his word and spirit. And that's why we long to hear the exposition of the word of God. That's why once you, you taste the exposition of God's word, you don't go anywhere else. Any other type of preaching, you know that God is speaking through His Word. That's why we, we sing, sometimes we sing here, Show us Christ, show us Christ. How? Through the preaching of... Through the preaching, show us Christ. Because Christ is present in the preaching as the Spirit is working through the Word. In Jonah, in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 6, we are told that the word of God, as Jonah is preaching, the rebellious prophet, and he knows the efficacy of God's word, and he knows the power of God, and that's why he doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to see those people repenting. And he speaks the word of God, and he says that the word of God, the Hebrew nagah, to strike, to pierce. And that's what the word of God did with the king of Nineveh. Pierce his heart. And then what happens? Repentance, humiliation, humbling himself before God. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the gospel and the word comes with judgment and salvation. He's striking the listener. So we listen, we, we, we read in chapter 2 verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard his word, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Why? Christ Jesus, through His Word, came and pierced their hearts, changed their heart, put to death the old heart, and brought a new heart. So as we put on Christ Jesus as our armor, He's our belt, He's our breastplate, He's our shield, He's our boots, He's our helmet, and He's our sword. As our sword, He keeps defending us and is striking our enemies with His Word. Amen? And we see the, the beauty of the Trinity here. Because throughout this whole passage, you have God the Father, you have the Lord Jesus, 
And now you have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And you see the, the, how the Trinity is powerfully involved in clothing us with this armor. That's beautiful. And that's important because the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they are inseparable. And the same is the Scripture and the Spirit and the Scripture in Jesus. So sometimes you hear people saying, Oh, I want a, a Spirit-filled church. I want a Spirit-filled church. Others will say, oh, I want a, a, a Bible-centered church. But the truth is, if we are being faithful to God, there is no divorce between Spirit, the Word, and Christ. The three all are together. There is no way to separate them. Amen? Amen. If a church is truly, faithfully, being faithful to God's Word, the Holy Spirit will be present because apart from His work, the Word is nothing. The Spirit of God must make the Word alive and effective because He also is part of God Himself. And where the Holy Spirit is present, He will bring His Word. There is no Holy Spirit without the Word. He inspired His words. He is the author of these words. And where the Holy Spirit is, the Word will be. And where the Word and the Spirit are, Christ Jesus will be magnified. There is no way. Amen? Jesus Christ and His Word, both are inseparable. So if I were to ask you, how were you saved? Were you saved through the preaching of God's Word? As Paul says in Romans 10. The salvation comes by the hearing of God's word. Jesus save you or the Holy Spirit save you? Why are we going to bring a sword and try to cut them into pieces when they are together? So if you're going to ask Luke in the book of Acts, Luke, who brought that great revival? Was it the ascended and risen Jesus? Was the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent? Or was the word of Christ? What do you think that Luke would say? Why are you trying to divide them? You can't separate them. If you're going to ask Martin Luther, Luther, who brought that great reformation? Was it the Lord Jesus? Was it the Holy Spirit? Or was it the Word? And you read Luther, and he's going to talk about Christ being charged of the reformation. He's going to talk about the Spirit of Christ. And then he's going to talk also about the Word. There is that famous uh, statement from Luther when he says, I did nothing. I just wrote the word, I preached and I taught the word. I slept. I was drinking Gutenberg beer with my friend Philip. I did nothing. The word did everything. You say, was the word of Christ? Why are you being foolish and trying to separate them? They're all together. The sword of his mouth, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, is what we need. Amen? That's what the church needs. We were talking about Libya earlier this morning. They don't need earthly weapons to fight against Muslims. They need this sword here to pierce the, their enemies' hearts with judgment and with salvation. That's the sword that they need. That's the sword that the church needs. And we I think about our church, how we have been experienced the power of the sword of the Spirit, Christ within us. The Word of God has been showing itself to be alive and powerful. Christ is present in this church. Think about the members are being sanctified, transformed into the image of Christ. We will be celebrating baptism sometime soon. We have new members being presented to the church, pursuing membership in this church. So we see how the enemy is being pierced by the sword of the Spirit. During the past dark days that we went through, the Word of God kept being central in the life of this church. Jesus Christ remained being declared through His Word, and the victory is ours. There is joy. There is love. There is unity. You see, the sword of the Spirit came and just chopped into half. All the oppression, all the depression, all the bitterness, all the unforgiving hearts that could have been created by His attacks. But because Christ remained in the center, being proclaimed, being sung, being prayed through His Word, the sword came and brought deliverance. Christ Jesus is our sword. 
Christ is active, effective. So as we sing the word, as we pray the word, as we build each other with the word of God, as we as you have been doing, promoting the preaching of God's word, the sword is alive in this place. Amen. Luther said, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And then he tells us, the word above all earthly powers. The word above all earthly powers, the word of Christ, the one little word shall fail him. Fell, the German, was referred to cutting to pieces. One little word shall cut him to pieces. So, we have received orders from our Lord and Captain to take up. Receive this beautiful sword that he has given us. Our Lord is making all things new through this sword that he has given us. And I'll finish by quoting one of my favorite preachers, Spurgeon. He says, The sword pursued you and pierced you in the secrets of your soul and made you bleed in a thousand places. And then execution was done indeed. That wound was deadly and none but he that killed could make you alive. Do you recollect now? After this, your sins were slain one after another. Their necks were laid on the block, and the Spirit acted as an executioner with his sword. And then he says, After that, blessed be God, your fears and doubts and despair and unbelief were also hacked into pieces by his same sword. The word gave you life, but it was at the first a great killer. Your soul was like a battlefield after a great fight under the first operations of the divine spirit, whose sword returneth not empty from the conflict. Praise be to God for his sword that has literally cut us, killed us, made us alive, and now he gives to us himself as a sword so we keep fighting. Amen? Oh Lord, how majestic is indeed your name. We thank you for being so gracious to us. Using your own sword to kill us. And then make us alive. And then graciously give us your sword. So we can keep fighting the good fight. So I pray you to help us. To have Christ in the center. And Christ will be the center through the preaching, the exposition, through the singing and the praying of your word. So help us. Thank you for a church that loves you, loves your word, is so faithful in supporting the ministry of the word. And we have been seeing, Lord, your work in us as our sword. Piercing the enemy. Cutting to pieces sinful habits in our lives. And all glory be given to you, O Lord Jesus, our sword. Be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.